0: Good morning, First Church. Hope everybody's doing well. Um, we are excited to be with you all this morning. Uh, we're going to get into some worship here in just a few minutes, and then uh, Pastor Bob is going to share a message with us. Um, we are just excited to be able to gather in this way together and just to worship together as a body. Um, so let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. <clears throat> Lord, we're thankful for Lord for who you are, Lord for your love. your mercy and your grace in our lives god we ask that um with everything going on that we would be able to just set this time aside lord and make this about you that we would be able to fully engage with our hearts and our minds Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning god Lord, we do pray for um the situation around the country lord and around the world with everything going on um we ask that you would just have your way lord um have your hand in this in this matter, Lord, and um, allow us to feel peace and comfort, Lord, and to know that despite everything that we see, Lord, that you are ultimately in control, and we know that. So, Lord, we love you, and we ask that above all this morning, you would be glorified and you would allow your will to be done as we worship you this morning. Amen.
1: I've never been too far You do it all
0: God, we just thank you for this time that we've had to worship you this morning. We ask that you would allow our hearts to remain open, Lord, as Pastor Bob comes to share with us, Lord. That
2: thanks, Jose. Uh, I think you uh, might have noticed Jose is doing this from his house today. <laughs> um, I, I got a couple things I want to mention as we get into this. One of the things I want to talk about a little bit is I was thinking about this in the past week, so I kind of changed things up a bit. Um, We had Easter, and then we had, uh, before that, I talked about on on a week before Easter, we talked about things related to that. And one of the things I thought about is, uh, I think about this all the time, about how Jesus reached out to Peter after Easter, about a week after Easter. So we're about a week after Easter. So we're going to look at that passage today. Before we do, I'm doing my, uh, every week now, my mug, what mug am I drinking coffee from today? It's from Hidden Springs Mission, and that is a mission we support Uh, Bill and Grace Manning and the kids uh, out on the Navajo reservation, Hidden Springs Gap area. And I know sometimes some of our uh, Navajo friends listen in on this, and so to them, just want to tell them you are welcome here. We're glad to have you. Um, We're going to look at this passage, and I'm going to read it, all right, like we usually do at church, but you don't have a sheet in your hand, so you're going to actually have to listen to me which I know is difficult at times. So let's, uh, let's, let me read this passage. This is John 21, verses 4 to 22. If you have a Bible app, you've got a Bible right there, or whatever, you can turn there. John chapter 21, verses 4 to 22. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, "'Friends, haven't you any fish?' "'No,' they answered. "'He said, "'Throw your net on the right side of the boat, "'and you will find some.'" "'When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. "'Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, "'It is the Lord.' "'As soon as Peter heard him say, "'It is the Lord,' he wrapped his outer garment around him, "'for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water.' the other disciples, followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There There was fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following him. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. You know, it's a, uh, this is such a beautiful passage. I love this passage uh, because there's, it's so poignant. <clears throat> it's so full of things, and uh, we're going to just scratch the surface today. But, you know, I was thinking about this. Um, we're in a very difficult time, a very different time. And, and um, for pastors— this is actually their worst nightmare. You know, I think about this, sometimes I imagine things, or sometimes I remember things that I've done in the past, or something, sometimes I, 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 I dream about things that are uh, difficult to d- think about, and difficult to remember. But this is the nightmare. The nightmare is, you show up to preach, and you show up to teach, and there's nobody here. There's just two people at the sound booth, and that's it. You're in an empty, in an empty place. And that that is the nightmare. Now, the only difference about the nightmare that I have at night about that and this is that right now I have my pants on, so it's not as embarrassing in, in, in the nightmare. But this is the key, I think, when we think about these things. Jesus is, is the person. Jesus redeems our personal failures. That's what we're going to see here. Jesus redeems our brokenness. He redeems the things we hate to think about. And when we talk about the resurrection and we talk about the Bible and the authority of the Bible, the authenticity, the historicity of the Bible, this passage is, is an important passage for, uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, uh, um, N.T. Wright wrote a, a large book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's, it's over 800 pages long, it's very scholarly. I don't recommend it as a light reading. But uh, he, he wrote this huge book encompassing all of this. And, and some of his arguments he got from G.K. Chesterton and, and C.S. Lewis, and this is one of them, he talks about the fact that, that in the four gospels, in the book of Acts, there are passages that show very strongly that it can't be a myth. It's not a myth or a legend. It's not, it's not in the form of a myth or a legend. You know, a quick example in this passage is, did you notice how many fish they caught? It's 153. Why 153? Because for people who say this is a legend, what they're going to say is that all numbers are very important. All numbers mean something. They're symbolic. But people have been trying for centuries to figure out what's the symbolism of 153 fish, and no one has come up with anything that sounds remotely possible. Now, 12 12 is an important number. 7 is a very big symbolic number. 10, 100, but nobody thinks 153 is a symbolic number. And so, why is it in there? Now the flip side is some people will say, and there's a couple of guys. Um, Bart Ehrman is, is one who is who is a, an, an atheist, and agnostic, and he he'll say, "Well, <coughs> it was a it's a non-symbolic number. It was put in there to make it seem realistic." But the problem is, and N.T. Wright addresses this, C.S. Lewis addresses this also, is the idea of putting a fictional inf- piece of information. Uh, into, uh, putting realistic details into a fictional piece of information. The problem with that is it's called modern realistic fiction, and that's the key. It's only a couple of hundred years old. It was unheard of before a few hundred years ago to simply put in details to make it seem more realistic. And so this is the problem when we see things like this. These kind of things make us think this is an eyewitness testimony. This is a person that is telling us exactly what they saw. And everything points to this. Because eyewitnesses oftentimes remember little details that mean nothing to the overall story. They just remember details because they were there. They were the person that saw it. They can't get it out of their head. And so when so when John writes there's 153 fish, why such a weird number? Because that's how many fish there were. And he remembers that. You know? You ever have that? You go, boy, I wonder why I remember that. It doesn't help the story. It doesn't advance, it's not symbolic. It has no meaning other than that's what actually happened. The fact that Peter put on, grabbed his coat and then jumped into the water, that doesn't help the story any. Jumping into the water shows us he wanted to get to Jesus quickly. But why put in the detail about his coat? It doesn't make, help. It doesn't make sense. Or the fact that the net didn't break. That doesn't help. It's not symbolic of anything. It's simply there because John's a fisherman. and He said, man, the net didn't break. So all these details, they don't add meaning to the passage. They're simply facts that are stuck in the writer's head because he was there. That's very important. So, when we look at this passage, and we start thinking, what does this mean as we talk about the story of Peter in John 21? Well, the first thing I want you to see, I want you to see how Jesus changes how we relate to each other. It says, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Okay? Now, we know that that, uh, from er- earlier in this passage, there's seven of them out fishing. There's Peter, there's Thomas, there's Nathaniel. It says the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. And then it just says two others. And they had fished all night and they hadn't caught a thing. And Jesus says, try one more time, right? Does that sound familiar? If you look at Luke chapter five, early on when Jesus is meeting the disciples, they have a night of no fish, no good, fishing's terrible, and he says, try one more time. And they have this incredible catch. So suddenly, this, you know, this when he says, try one more time, John figures it out. He goes, oh my goodness, this happened before. I think about in that boat, those men. And, and, and the point is how Jesus changes how we relate to others. I think about how incredibly different those men are in that boat. I mean, when you think about it, These are the kind of people that never really would hang out with each other. We have Nathaniel. If you remember the story of Nathaniel, early on when he met Jesus, he believed very quickly. When he first met Jesus, Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel goes, How'd you know that? You are the Son of God, you're the Messiah. And Jesus tells him, boy, you convert easily. He kind of says it that way. That was a little easy. Wow, that was quick. I haven't even done any miracles yet. Wait till you see what else I'm going to do, right? So Nathaniel, he just believes easily. I, I wish sometimes I could believe easily. I can struggle with that. I can struggle sometimes with doubters. I can second guess things or psychoanalyze or whatever. I wish I could be more like Nathaniel sometimes. But then in the boat with Nathaniel is Thomas. Now, Thomas is the opposite of of nathaniel he's not superstitious he's substitious right he's hard-headed he's doubtful he says i will not believe unless i see the holes in his hands his feet his side i'm not believing until i see that all the disciples all the witnesses tell him he's alive thomas he's he, nah you guys this is like some weird prank right so he's doubtful he's hard-headed he is the exact opposite of nathaniel and they're in the boat together why because of jesus jesus brought them together because normally Nathaniel's and Thomas's, they don't get along. Or John and Peter. John is pretty rational. He seems to exhibit that over the course of the times that we read about him. He's, he's, and he's the first one here to figure it out. He's the first one to go, hmm, that's Jesus, right? He crunched the data. He says, this is Jesus. First one to think it. He doesn't do anything necessarily. He's just like, that's Jesus, right? But what does Peter, what does Peter do? Peter, who is not that good at thinking things out, he's the first one to act. He's the first one to do anything about it. He jumps out of the boat. He wades to shore. Now, Peters and Johns oftentimes don't get along. Peters think that Johns are cowards. They're always wanting to form a committee to study an issue. Long, they, want to, they take a long time before anything happens, right? And Johns think that Peter, Peters are, impressive, are impetuous. They're hotheads, They're always jumping the gun. They're always saying stupid things, which is kind of true, right? So they're not naturally together. The Bible says this in many places, that Jesus is going to pull people together who wouldn't naturally be together. He's going to cross racial divides. He's going to cross class divides. He's going to cross social divides. Think about all these people. You know, I, I... when we first go online and I'm just kind of watching as people check in and say hi and, and, and love you guys and miss you guys and seeing that, and oh, I'm going to cry crap. And seeing that, it makes me realize there's so many people that God has brought together here a First Church. We would never know each other apart from Jesus Christ. People who maybe at other, in other situations would despise each other and would have nothing to do with each other. But when Jesus is involved, he brings wisdom and love and he brings reconciliation. This is what makes the church so great. This is what makes the church so winsome. People from all backgrounds, people who would not usually be together, find a common life, a common belief, a common purpose that unites them together. So we see, first of all, Jesus changes how we relate. Now I want you to see something else. Jesus changes how we relate to others, changes how we relate to ourselves. And this is where we dig into this passage and be, begin to see what's going on with Peter. Because we struggle oftentimes with being reconciled with who we are. In James chapter 4, one of the things that James talks about, remember when we did James here, and you can go to our website and you can look it back up if you want and listen to the sermon. James chapter 4, he says, where do these fightings come from? And he's telling them, they come from within you. They come from within you. Because it's hard for us at times to, to understand and be reconciled with who we really are transparency is is, is, with ourselves is key here but if there's no transparency then there's no openness if i can't be transparent with myself and understand myself i can't i can't work it out with other people i can't have the openness that it needs because so oftentimes we can lead lives of illusion we spend time and energy trying to prove ourselves and prove to others that we that we're something other than what we really are it's hard to admit our flaws it's hard to admit our weakness it's hard to admit our brokenness Peter is the case study for this. And so let's think about what happened. Let's remember what happened that leads up to this point. At the end of his life, end of Jesus' life, all his disciples had let him down, but especially Peter. Peter was so out of touch with who he was and so needing to keep up his image of himself as a strong person that he made this proud boast to Jesus right before Jesus went to Jerusalem to die, talking about his faithfulness and how strong he was in Matthew twenty six thirty three. What he did, what he does, he says. And I am not. It's not on the screen. This is the room. This is the reversed Mosley interpretive version. He says basically he goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, look, I've been watching these losers that you are associating with, and they're all gonna, they're all gonna doubt. they're gonna ditch you. They they don't love you like I love you. Can you imagine Peter? I can imagine Peter coming up to Jesus, put his arm around him, you know, just tell him, Jesus, just between you and me, th- those guys stink, right? They stink. I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to go to death. Right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll die for you, Jesus. I'm going to die for you. He says, these other guys, they are not what you think they are. And then what happens? We, we know this. He denies Jesus three times. The third time, he even curses in his denial. And so when we think about what led to this situation, can you imagine... Can you imagine that the, the, the news comes and people, Jesus, he's risen. And then Peter sees Jesus and everybody's thrilled. But you know, Peter maybe not so thrilled because all he can think about, think how this would affect you. All he can think about is the last thing he did before Jesus died. That's all he can think about. That dominates him. And so he's, he's thinking, yeah, he is risen, but I'm a failure, I'm a failure. In his greatest hour of need, I cursed him. I denied him to a girl, to a little girl. Now, I mean, just to, to a person who shouldn't, I shouldn't have to worry about what they think about me. And so, Peter has said, and we see this at the beginning of the chapter, Peter said, I'm, go- I'm going fishing. They saw Jesus a couple of times, and then they've had a few days. Peter's stewing in his depression, I would think, and he said, I'm, I'm going fishing. Let's go fish. and they and they said, we'll, we'll go fishing with you, because I think he's thinking, maybe maybe this is, I'm disqualified. I can't, I can't follow. I mean, I can't. I denied him, so I'll go back to what I know. I'll go to fishing. This is going to be my life, and so as we see this, then Peter becomes this case study for reconciliation. He becomes a person that that this, this is going to be so important for us to see. So he has three denials. How do you get over that? This is what Peter's grappling with here. How does he get past that? It dominates him. And so we see, how is Jesus going to make this happen in Peter's life? When they landed They saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus brings Peter back to a fire. That's where he denied him, keeping warm by a fire in the middle of the night. And now Jesus has brought him back to that. He's brought him back, in a sense, to the setting of the betrayal. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you, Jesus said. You know that I love you, Jesus said. Feed feed my lambs. So now what's going to happen? He brought him back to the setting. Now he's going to bring him, he's going to rehearse what happened, in a sense, the content of the betrayal. The content of the betrayal is, do you love me? Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Now, this word hurt means this has deeply affected him. He's, he, this, is, this is brutal, what's going on here. He was hurt because Jesus asked him. Now, why is he he's hurt? Jesus asked him the third time. Why? because now Peter's connecting the dots. I'm by a fire, and we're doing something in a three. This hurts. He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. And so, he's, so we have the setting of the betrayal. We have the content of the betrayal. Jesus, Peter's you know, saying, I love you more than these guys, and Jesus is saying, do you really? Let's go over this three times, which is the form of it. It, it, it came in, in a three, And so Jesus wants Peter, he wants Peter to face himself. Peter, you failed me three times. He wants him to face himself. He he wants him no more emotional or psychological, no more pretending. No pretending of who you are or who you wish you were. Let's look at what you've done. That's what Jesus is doing. He's focusing him in, this is what you did. And you might say, wow, that's pretty rough. And it is rough. It, It is, it is rough. Especially the third time, because then it all clicks for Peter, and he realizes what's going on. Jesus is reminding me that I failed him. It's like Jesus sees that third, and says, "Are we going? do we have to go back over all of this? And Jesus is like, yes, we do. And it is rough, but it's rough. It, to me, it's rough like surgery. You know, a surgery that you have that leads to better health. you got to go all the way through it. You can't stop part way you got to go all the way through the, the surgery. And so he says, and each time he says, I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to take care of my sheep. I want you to feed my sheep. I love this because it's all in the present imperative. It's a command from Jesus, but it means do it now. Right now, start now. There's no, we're not having this rehabilitation period. Now is when I want you to start. I'm choosing you to be a leader. I'm choosing you to be a shepherd. I'm choosing you to be like me. Start now. This is incredible affirmation in the midst of this difficult situation. So, Because at the same time, Jesus is doing two things. He's showing Peter how broken he is, but he's also showing him this incredible love and grace. He's saying, I want you to lead a flock. <clears throat> Peter thinks, He thinks that his actions have disqualified him. And Jesus is saying, I can turn your disqualification into a qualification, and I can use you. That's what Jesus does in our lives. That's what he does for us. So Jesus says, look, you failed me. And Peter says, I know I failed you. And Jesus says, okay, so now I'm putting, you, I'm putting you in charge. You failed me, I know I failed you. Great, you're leadership material. His failure is, with those seven people, his failure is the most obvious, it's the most grievous. And Jesus is saying, I'm gonna plunge you into my grace and you're coming out a leader. It'll make you greater than you ever were before. <clears throat> Your great failure will lead to great leadership. And this is hard for us to see, right? Because in our, culture, our, in our culture, we don't often get second chances. We don't often give second chances. We judge people harshly on one particular thing that maybe they've done that has upset us. Maybe somebody says something that hurts my feelings, and now uh, I've judged them. I don't want to have anything to do with them necessarily. Or maybe, you know, somebody, and I, 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 we're that way. We want second chances like crazy, but we don't give them very often. We tend to hold, label people by their mistakes and hold them to it. The world is tough on screw-ups. But Jesus, he, he totally reverses, he flips it. He teaches that if you've been forgiven much, you'll, for, you'll love much. And the more you see your brokenness and the more you plunge into my grace, then you will understand people. You will see how your heart works. You will be more reliant on me. You will be less surprised as life goes on. When we are able to see this is how my heart is, it wants to lead me in these bad in these difficult directions, these wrong directions, this sin uh, lead me into these things. When I recognize that, then I can then I go to God. And he gives strength. In a time of need, he works through his spirit and through his word to change us from the inside out. Years ago, um, I spoke at a. My, my wife and I were involved in, in working with youth in various ways for about thirty years, and um, years ago, I, I spoke at a, a middle school retreat in um, up in Northern Virginia for McLean Bible Church. The pastor there is a friend of mine, and and. Um, I spoke at a middle middle school retreat, and and it's it's middle schoolers, right? <laughs> All our years of ministry, my wife loved middle schoolers. <clears throat> I'm not so thrilled. I wasn't so thrilled. It, I mean, I loved, but it was more difficult. And I spoke on a middle school retreat, and it was big. And at the and 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 what happened is, you know, you speak, and then oftentimes <clears throat> during free time or other times teens will come and they'll, they'll want to talk, you know, and I make myself available. I tell them I'm available. Come come grab me and we'll start talking. Well, what happened was at this particular retreat, a number of, of middle school 12, 13-year-old girls, they, uh, they, they, couple up, they sought me out one at a time, and I'm sitting there and this girl's like, there's this guy and he loves me. And and he doesn't even know I exist. And I'm like, oh, I know that's difficult, you know, and and I'm trying to give wise counsel. So she leaves, and a little later, this is another young lady, and, and she goes, there's this guy. It was the same guy. He doesn't even know I exist. Well, after about the fifth one, and they were all about the same guy, I was like, I've heard this song and dance before. I'm getting a little tired of it, you know. And so he doesn't even know I exist. and Because um, I want to say, Listen. <laughs> Get out of this. You're going to forget about him in six months, and you'll find some other guy to break your heart over, right? This is, this is a cycle. It's not going to hurt you. You'll be okay. This isn't a real problem in this world. And then I was speaking about God's grace and how it showed in different areas, including in the life of Peter in John 21. And I thought, God's telling me to feed the sheep. The sheep. He didn't tell me I got to pick and choose who the sheep were or what their problems were. He said, you just feed the sheep. Get a shepherd's heart into your life because you've got to be ready to feed my lambs, serving people, sometimes the least of these, when there's no intellectual, there's no emotional, there's no psychological benefit from it at all. You'll get nothing out of it. They might get something out of it, but you'll get nothing out of it. This is the shepherd's heart. And it was like God was saying, Bob, this is what I've called you to. Feed my sheep. You're not going to choose what my sheep are going to bleat about. Just feed them. Just be there for them. Love them like a shepherd would. And then I realized, okay, so this is a great opportunity for me rather than something that I don't like. It's a great opportunity for me. But this can only happen when we see ourselves rightly. When we, because what happens is, you know, I'm older, they're younger, and I'm just like, this means nothing. Quit crying. He is not worth it. He's a jerk. Okay? It's, I can see that, but that, that's not helpful in that situation. I have to understand, when I see how I am, when I see what a moral failure that I am, that I've been plunged into the grace of Jesus Christ, then I can minister and love and feed sheep. So what does that mean, and how do we get it? Because Jesus changes how we relate to others. Jesus changes how we relate to ourselves, but also Jesus changes how we relate to God. He says this, I tell you the truth to Peter. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old... You will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. He, you know, it's interesting. The first thing he heard from Jesus was follow me. And now at the end, he says, follow me, be the leader. He says, you're going to stretch out your arms. That's that's an um, idiom for the crucifixion. He says, Peter, you're going to build the rest of your life on the pattern of my death. And that's how you will become a shepherd to people who you would have never associated with in the past. You see how Jesus is setting him up to be the first person to say, we need to reach the Gentiles? To see that that's okay? He says, "Even, even the people who can't give you something in return... You're going to serve them to the point of dying for them. And, and Peter died serving in Rome. On the cross, Jesus became the ultimate shepherd, the ultimate friend, giving himself for people who he would get nothing for out of. He decided to be the ultimate shepherd. And so G- he's saying to Peter, follow my footsteps, walk after me. We have to realize that if we walk after Jesus, It often leads to a cross in one way or another in our lives. It leads to hard decisions that maybe we don't want to make. It leads to sacrifices that we don't want to do. And history tells us that Peter was crucified. Tertullian wrote that he was crucified by Nero in AD 65. And tradition has it that he requested, Tertullian tells us this, he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't think he was worthy of being crucified the way Jesus was crucified. You know, it's interesting. In the Luke 5 story about fishing, when Jesus says, throw your net, and they get the big catch, what does Peter do? He realized he was in the presence of greatness and he felt small. What does he say there? If you read that story back in Luke 5, he says, I am a sinful man. Go away, depart from me, right? I'm not worthy of you. And that's all of us, right? We don't like to see our flaws because our, our self-image is based on this idea of, that we're a good person or we're a cool person or we're a sensitive person or we're an achieving person or we're a humble person or whatever it is for you. You have, a, you have this uh, kind of idea, what, what you think is you, and we don't like to see our flaws, we like to see the image that we, we would like to be. And what, what happens when we get in the presence of someone or something that makes us feel small and exposes our flaws? It's, a, it's like a psychological death and we want to get away from it, depart from me. That's what happened to Peter in Luke 5. It was like, oh my goodness, you are something, you are holy, I am not. You are other, I am not. He understood that and he felt intimidated. Do you ever notice how that happens with us? Think of times you felt intimidated. Think of times where you've been in a situation with other people and somehow you come out feeling like, ah, I, I don't feel good about that. Maybe you got around someone who is obviously much smarter than you, someone who's more successful than you, someone who's, who's better looking than you. I haven't dealt with that, but someone who's more well off than you. You, what happens, you feel intimidated. You don't like it. Maybe you kind of murmured inside, well, who does she think she is, or who does he think he is? And, and maybe you belittled them. Mm-hmm. Well, they only got it because, you know, their parents, or this, or that, or they got all the advantages I never got, right? That's what happens. You feel that. You feel intimidated. You deal with that. And you have to understand yourself to know why that's happening. But this time, see, that was, that was Luke 5, and he felt that way. This time in John 21, notice the difference. There's all those fish, and Peter does not say, depart from me. He runs to Jesus like a madman. He jumps out of the boat. Forget the fish, forget my friends. He goes straight for Jesus to get as close to him as possible. He's being plunged into grace. And if you're changed by grace, now failure is not some kind of a psychological death. It becomes a growth. You plunge your failures into his grace. It makes you a more loving person. It makes you a smarter person. It gives you a shepherd heart. And so we need to be like Peter when we recognize ourselves. We fly to Jesus, even though we know it could be painful. I don't think Peter knew exactly what was going to happen when he jumped out of that boat and got to Jesus as quick as he could. But I think afterwards he knew that had to happen. He had to deal with that failure and understand that it is gone now. It is forgiven. And now we get to what I think is one of the funnier parts of the Bible. I love this. Uh, at the very end of that, think about that. That's what we do, you know? Because what, what's happening? Jesus basically tells Peter, stop comparing yourself, he's comparing himself. He's saying, well, what about, He's, and, and he, he said, I'm going to die, so what, what's going to happen to him? And, and Jesus is telling I have a plan for him. You don't know that plan, and I'm not going to tell you that plan. It's not your business. I have a plan for you. I'm going to talk to you about your plan, but stop comparing yourself. You know, comparison robs you of joy. Think about that. Any time you compare yourself with someone else, it will rob you of joy. If you compare yourself with someone you think is higher than you, it will make you go, oh, I wish I had that. If you compare yourself with someone you think is lower than you, you'll feel superior. And when you do that, it robs you of joy. There's no joy in it. And Jesus tells Peter, you have no idea what's fair and what's unfair. You don't know what this person has been through. You don't know the whole story. He says, no, you just look at me, follow me. And so as we wrap this up, for all of us, something to think about. Your failures, those things you think about, those nightmares, those things you think about when no one's around, or they come out, and things you did to another person, things you did to yourself, things, things you did to your family, and they, they make you grind your teeth or groan or feel ashamed. Jesus says, plunge them into my grace. I died for those sins and I died for that shame become a trophy of grace for me realize the depth of the grace that has been given to you realize the depth of the forgiveness that has been given to you and that makes you a person who will serve others that makes you a person who will serve even the least of these with nothing in return you'll learn to serve with open hands and an open heart coming into something with no agenda just to serve Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your your scripture. We thank you for Jesus and what he did for Peter and that you working through the Holy Spirit got John to write that down for our benefit to see that our sins, our shame now has been plunged into grace. Our failures now, you have changed them so now we we can become people who feed, people who serve, people who live it out in other people's lives. Help us to look for those opportunities and to act upon them when you show them to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. It's been uh, it's just great to know that people are listening and we're connecting this way. And um, we look forward to that day when we'll all be back in this room together. Thank you.